Last week we began our study of 1 John in a series on Sunday evenings, calling 1 John, as it has been called by others, the Epistle of Certainties. We've noted that it has also been called the Epistle of, of Love. But the Epistle of Certainty certainly describes the, the book because, as we have mentioned in the introduction, the word know or some form of the word know, K-N-O-W, appears time and time again. As the Apostle John clearly affirms that we can know the truth, that we can know that we know Him, First John 2 and verse 3, which we'll get to the Lord willing soon. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And his commandments, he later states in the epistle, are not grievous. They're not burdensome. They're not, they're not too much for the Lord to ask of us. You know, while it may be said that the book of 1 John, this epistle is the epistle of certainties, it can also be expanded, that statement can, to include all of God's word, can it not? The Bible is a book of certainties. That is, it is truth. Absolute truth, nothing more and nothing less. And don't we wish today that more people viewed the Bible in that way? And yet we live in a time where fewer and fewer people do view the Bible as the inerrant, all-inspired, all-sufficient, powerful Word of God. And yet it is still just that. Whether anyone believes that is or not, it still will be because it is from God. As we have begun our study of the first four verses of, of 1 John, we notice the emphasis on fellowship. And I want to continue that emphasis tonight. In fact, John continues that, that emphasis himself uh, in the remainder of this first chapter as we will finish those uh, Verses from verse 5 through verse 10, the remainder of this first chapter, hopefully, tonight. But as we do, and before we get into verse 5, with which we begin our verse-by-verse study tonight, I'd like for us to consider, or reconsider, if you will, review some things about faith and fellowship. Faith and fellowship. Because John emphasizes fellowship in this epistle. It's one of the key words, as we noted in the introduction. But as we think about fellowship and its relationship to faith, I'd like for us to consider that faith alone does not bring one into fellowship with God and Christ. And if we go back to a verse that we studied last time, verse 3, we remember that John wrote there, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that. Remember we said that obviously indicates in order that. In other words, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that. In order that, you also may have what? That you may have fellowship. How did we define fellowship? The way the Bible defines fellowship. It is participation, joint participation. It is partnership. It is a joint sharing. And that fellowship, as we noted, is not only between those who have obeyed the same teaching, the teaching of the New Testament, but those who have have also entered into fellowship 
with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what John reminds us of in that verse we review now, 1 John 1 and verse 3. And so he says, we're declaring to you as eyewitnesses, as those who have have seen with our eyes, remember verse 1, as those who have looked upon, those whose hands have handled the living word, capital W, the word of life, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, as John wrote in his gospel account in John 1, chapter 1, verse 14. The, the word, living word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, John says, I'm declaring to you the things that we have seen and heard, this message in order that you may enter into fellowship with us, and not only with us, but most importantly, fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, with that in mind, I want you to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul there writes, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now keep that statement in mind. He says, God is faithful, writing now to Christians at Corinth, thus to all Christians for all time. He said, you have been called by God. You've been called by God into what? Into a relationship called fellowship. Into that joint participation into that partnership, not only with those who have done the same thing you have done at Corinth, he writes, not only with your brothers and sisters, but with Jesus Christ, your elder brother, your Savior. You've been called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, the question then arises perhaps, how is it that God calls us into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord? Well, for the definitive answer, we go to the passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. There, Paul, same writer who wrote 1 Corinthians, of course, there he writes to these Christians at Thessalonica, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Stop right there and let us remind ourselves that they were not predestined. He's not talking about predestination of individual souls here. He's saying that He chose you from the beginning, you who? Those who would be sanctified or saved by sanctification by the Spirit, being set apart apart by the Word of God. That that salvation comes to all those who will be sanctified, set apart by the teaching of the Spirit, and in belief of the truth. Now notice then, he continues, to which he called you by our gospel. What does the phrase to which refer to? The phrase to which refers to salvation, doesn't it? Chose you from the beginning for salvation. Chose anyone for salvation who will be willing to be set apart or sanctified by the teaching of the Spirit and believe in the truth and obey it. And he further specifies to which salvation, to which salvation he called you by what? By our gospel. 
for the what? For the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you put together the two passages we've just noted. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then look at 2 Thessalonians, this time just verse 14, to which the salvation mentioned in verse 13, to which salvation, in other words, he called you by our gospel. God called you into fellowship, 1 Corinthians 1, 9. How did he do it? Paul, the same writer, says he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God calls all men into fellowship with him and with his son, Jesus Christ. How? Through the gospel. And that is completely harmonious with what we're looking at in John's writing in 1 John 1. That which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have looked upon, that which our hands have handled of the word of life. All of this, he says, we are declaring unto you so that you may have fellowship with us and with God and Christ. The point being from these passages, there can be no fellowship with God without this gospel. There can be no fellowship with God and Christ without obedience to the gospel. We cannot extend fellowship to those who have not entered into that fellowship by having answered the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Regardless of their sincerity, regardless of their good intentions, regardless of anything, nothing matters other than obedience to the gospel because that, as we have clearly seen from Scripture, is the only way into which God calls us into fellowship with Him. But you know, there's a great deal of talk and concern in the news these days about the crisis on the border, about a border crisis. And there is indeed a border crisis. And it's tragic indeed to see throngs of these young people who are suffering as they are, who have crossed our border. And it is a border crisis. And we understand the illegal nature of these border, border cross, uh, crosses, border crossings that have that have led to this crisis. But let me suggest to you, tragically, that tonight we are facing a spiritual border crisis. We are experiencing a spiritual border crisis. It is happening in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's happening in cities all across the country. What is that spiritual border crisis? It is the willingness of members of the body of Christ to ignore God's spiritual borders and to extend fellowship and to embrace those who have not been called by God through the gospel into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. And there are those who are contending now that those borders no longer matter and that indeed we can extend that fellowship and broaden our spiritual horizon, so to speak, by welcoming into fellowship those who have fallen short 
of obedience to the gospel of Christ. The passages we have just examined should clearly show the honest student of the word of God that that is contrary to the will of God and that we cannot extend fellowship to those who have not answered the call of the gospel by hearing, repenting, confessing, and by being baptized for remission of their sins. And even to those who have undergone that process of hearing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized for remission of sins, they too must continue to live the Christian life. Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. And as we discussed the subject and began a brief series this morning on restoring the lost sheep, a part of that restoration process is recognizing that not only must we withhold fellowship from those who've never obeyed the gospel, but ultimately, ultimately, when there is no response favorably from every effort to reclaim the lost sheep, we must withdraw that fellowship. We must withhold it from those who have not answered the call of the gospel. We must withdraw it from those who have once answered it, but refuse, despite every loving effort to reclaim them, to come home to their first love. And it is certainly the case that faith-only advocates deny the necessity of obeying the gospel by denying baptism for the forgiveness of sins. When one denies that baptism is non-essential to salvation, one has denied the gospel. And when one denies the gospel, one has not answered the call of the gospel, but he finds himself opposed to it and therefore cannot enter into the fellowship about which John writes and about which Paul writes, the sweet, precious fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and all brothers and sisters who have, who have understood and appreciated the importance of rendering, rendering complete obedience to the will of God. And with that, we continue in our study of 1 John with verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What's the key phrase here? Well, the key phrase is God is light. A key word is message. This is the message which we have heard from him and we declare to you. You know, that reminds me of 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. Paul writing to Timothy saying, The things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, the same you commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. There's the perpetuation process that we are to be engaged in as faithful members of the body of Christ. We are to treasure that precious gospel. We are to protect it, but we are to proclaim it to every generation and pass it to our generation beyond our own, teach it to faithful men who hopefully will teach others also. This is the message. Not that God is a light. That's not what he says. Not that God is the light, but that God is light. 
God is light. In other words, light is the very essence of God Almighty. You know, the expression is found in Scripture, God is love. God is love. God is love. That's the moral nature. The intellectual side is God is light. And in Him is what? No darkness at all. No darkness at all. In the original, that is in an emphatic form. No darkness at all. In other words, the idea being there is not one tiny speck of darkness in God. God is nothing but light. And the darkness to which that light is contrasted is the darkness of this world, the darkness of the heathen deities, the darkness over which Satan is said to be the power of darkness and the ruler of the darkness of this world. What a contrast there is. And that contrast is pointed out in New Testament passages like Ephesians 5 and verse 8 where Paul writes to these Christians who were now Christians, but he says to them, for you were once darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. And then he gives this admonition, walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. Look at Colossians 1. And verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And the emphasis through this portion of John's first epistle is on this light into which we enter where God is and where God is nothing but light. And in Him there's not one speck of darkness at all. And we must be in that light because God cannot and will not embrace any darkness whatsoever. There's no darkness in him and he cannot tolerate darkness. There is a difference between saying that there is darkness in the presence of God as God looks upon all of this world and saying that there is darkness in God. There is no darkness in God. Oh yes, there is darkness in his presence because he is omnipresent. He's everywhere, and he sees the darkness of this world. But in him is no darkness, and in order to be saved, we must come out of that darkness and into the light of God. And then John continues in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say that we have fellowship with Him. If we say or profess one thing, but we are actually walking, doing, in other words, something else, that is walking in darkness, we're living a lie. And we are not what? Practicing the truth. Can truth be practiced? Absolutely. Must truth be practiced? Yes. John mentions that very thing here. We must practice the truth. It's not enough to say, I believe this truth. I believe every word of this book. But what is essential is to practice what I claim to believe. We must practice the truth. And the word walk is recurring throughout this portion of John's first epistle. So it's one thing to say we have fellowship with him, 
But it's another thing to prove that we do by our walk in the light, by the fact that we practice the truth. And that brings us to verse 7, where he says we must walk in that light. Incidentally, Jesus, you remember in John chapter 8, as he lived among men, referred to himself among those great I am's in John's account of the gospel as I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. And then he adds, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Follow, walk, activity, practice the truth. In other words, it's not enough to believe, but our belief must prompt us to act. And so John in verse 7 writes, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. There's a lot of present tense action in these words in this section. The word walk in the first part of the verse is in the present active subjunctive, if we walk, subjunctive tense, but if we walk and walk is present active subjunctive, in other words, if we keep on walking, if we keep on walking. What does that say about those who claim that once you're saved, you're always saved? Here's another one of those hundreds of passages that makes it abundantly clear that that is a false doctrine. Because John says you've got to keep on, literally keep on walking in the light where God is, where God is nothing but light, God is light, you've got to keep walking in the light. In order to what? in order to have fellowship with one another, and the second thing that results from it is to have the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleansing you from all sin. You see, only through fellowship with God is fellowship with the brethren possible. You really can't have fellowship with one without the other if you are looking at true fellowship as it is defined in Scripture. And fellowship with one another and the cleansing blood of Christ are the results of that wonderful walk in the light of God's Word. If we keep on walking in the light as He is in the light, we have that wonderful fellowship with one another. And what? The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from most every sin. No. The blood of Christ cleanses us from what? All sin. But notice, this passage does not say that my acceptance of the fact that Jesus died on Calvary for me cleanses me from my sin. It does not say that the fact that he died on Calvary cleanses me from sin. It doesn't say that my belief in the fact that he died cleanses me from sin. In other words, it says it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses. It is the blood of Christ that cleanses me. And the word cleanses in that same present tense keeps on cleansing us from what? Aren't you glad that this little word all is here? All sin. Sins of omission? Yes. Sins of commission? Yes. Sins of ignorance? Yes. Presumptuous sins? Yes. Any sin, every sin, of which we will truly repent and meet God's conditions of pardon are gone. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Now here, John's discussion is not related to the alien sinner, but more specifically the context relates to those who have already been cleansed by that blood in baptism, preceded by a faith that led them to repent, to confess, and then to be buried in baptism, reaching that blood and being cleansed therein in that watery grave, cleansed by the blood and rising to walk in newness of life. But he is contending here that even once we have risen from that watery grave, we still fall short. And he'll talk much more about that in the verses that follow in this great first epistle. But the point is, here for the child of God is the process by which we remain purified in the sight of God. We've got to keep walking in the light as he is in the light in order to have that fellowship with one another and to have that continual cleansing of the blood of Christ. Is it possible for us to live above sin? No, the very next statement from John makes it clear that that's an impossibility. John here says if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here the indication is the concept of sin, that the essence of sin, not specific sins as he will get to in the next verse but and the next, but if we say that we have no sin, if we don't sin, if we can live above sin, if we claim we can live above sin, then we what? Deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well now, remember in the introduction to this epistle, we said that John was confronting a group of, of individuals who claimed a superior knowledge, the Gnostics. And there were two basic groups of the Gnostics, the Docetics and the Serinthian Gnostics. But basically, one of their tenets was that the body and the spirit, they cannot, they cannot dwell together. In other words, uh, deity rather, that deity and a body cannot dwell together. And so Christ uh, could not have actually come in the flesh. He only appeared to be in the flesh to, to some. Or remember one group says that the Christ des, uh, descended upon him at his baptism and, uh, and left him at the cross. Fanciful, <laughs> far out theories. But also the Gnostics believe that since what the body did did not affect the spirit, that once you were cleansed, then nothing that the body did would affect the spirit. So therefore, there was no such thing as sin, really. In other words, you could engage in any and every activity you wanted to with the body, and it would in no way adversely affect your spirit. Well, there's not much doubt that John, by inspiration, had that group in mind as he penned these words. Because in effect, they claimed to have no sin. But you know something? As we've said before, the Bible is a, a marvelous book in that it can anticipate error even in our day and addresses it in principle. Who is it today that in effect says, we can live above sin? It's that same group of people that says, once you're saved, you're always saved. That's in effect what they're contending, isn't it? That sin, once you've been saved, can in no way adversely affect your eternal salvation. Therefore, in effect, it's the same contention that the Gnostics were making back in John's day. John answered it then, and as he answered it then, he answered the present day error as well. 
There's only one book that can do that effectively and completely, and that is the inspired Word of God. And so what does John tell us we should do? In the next verse, we, if we confess our sins, this has to be specific sin now that John has in mind, not the concept of sin as a whole, but specific sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Keep on cleansing us, that is, that's present tense again, keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. And you know the word confess is also in that same present tense, which means if we what? One time confess our sins, we can forget about it. No, if we keep on confessing our sins, he will keep on cleansing us and keep on forgiving us. So what's the combination that John sets forth for the child of God to have peace and comfort and joy unspeakable? The combination is walk in the light as he is in the light and confess your sins to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. You know, there are sins we confess to the Father in heaven, obviously. All sins are confessed to the Father in heaven if we have any hope of forgiveness. But also, we acknowledge our sins before our brothers and sisters. When those sins are known, the confession and repentance need to be equally and as widely known as the sin is known. And in James chapter 5, at verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another, James writes, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The Bible doesn't teach that we're to confess every private sin to every brother and sister in Christ, but when that sin is known to one or more, then it needs to be repented of and confessed to the one or more involved, as well as to God, obviously. But where do you find in this passage a priest anywhere? Where do you find in this passage the old prayer partner concept of the crossroads movement that later evolved into the Boston movement and now the uh, International Church of Christ, where every private sin you've ever done, thought about doing, or thought, every thought you ever had was just laid wide open before all of these individuals. That's a totally anti-biblical concept. Every sin that is private needs to be taken care of between you and God. And when that sin is known, it needs to be taken care of among those who know it. And so... There is no admonition for confession beyond those biblical limits, and there is no room for a priest in this process by which we remain cleansed. And the Bible makes that abundantly clear. That whole procedure, tragically, is a man-made invention. And then finally, John writes, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Notice John concludes this particular section with, his word is not in us. What is it then, as we close tonight, that needs to be in us in order for us to be pleasing to God? Well, you can say inaccurately that God needs to be in us, and the Bible does speak of God in 
us. You can say accurately and biblically that Christ needs to be in us. The Bible speaks of that. Christ in you, Paul wrote, the hope of glory. But the key is, how is God in us? How is Christ in us? And John answers it, as do other inspired writers, right here when he says his word is not in us. It's the all-sufficient, all-powerful word of God that must be in us for God to be in us. The Ephesian letter, Paul affirms that Christ may dwell in your hearts by what? By faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. How tragic it is that so many ignore the power of the word of God and they do not have that word in them. What about you tonight? Is the word in you because you've obeyed it and are living it in your life? If not, it can be. As soon as you're willing to hear it and heed it by believing with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, by repenting of your sins, confessing Him to be the Christ, and by being buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. It is then and only then in that watery burial that the blood of Christ is applied to cleanse you from every sin, all sin, remember as John put it, all sin, and allow you to rise truly as a new creation in Christ Jesus. And as you keep up your walk in Him, walking in the light as He is in the light, as God is in the light, then you have a sweet, precious fellowship not only with others who've done that same thing, but most importantly, you have the most precious fellowship that extends to the Father and to the Son, Jesus Christ. Tonight, God calls you into fellowship with Him, 1 Corinthians 1, 9. But 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says the only way He's going to do it is through the plan I've just outlined from this book, the New Testament. Will you answer that call? And if you have, but you know you've turned your back on it, will you come home in repentance and confession of any sin that needs to be confessed publicly as we stand to sing to encourage you?